Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. In this COVID-themed episode, we'll be looking more closely at new shielding guidance with SAGE member and QCOVID expert, Kamlesh Kunti, and thinking how we can address inequalities in COVID vaccination uptake with Public Health England's Kevin Fenton. I'm Tom Nolan, a GP in London and clinical editor uh, at the BMJ. And just as no trip to the supermarket these days would be possible without a face mask, we couldn't have an episode of Deep Breath In without Jenny. Hi, Jenny. That was a stretch, but hi, I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ. Hi, Jenny. And it gets better. Um, <laughs> and because we're taking no risks here, we're going to double mask this week with... <laughs> Navjoy, hi Navjoy. Hi, my name's Navjoy Lada. I'm the head of education at the BMJ, and I'm uh, a locum GP, and I'm your extra double mask. <laughs> and I was thinking, well, what does that make me? And I, and I think I know it's you know like the hand sanitizer you have in the the supermarket that that everyone just ignores and walks past. <laughs> I think that's me. So. <laughs> No, it's useful. It's That's useful, good. yeah. You should be proud. You've reached Not the N95? No, no, no. No, no. Um, um, so, anyway, uh, so to start the episode today, I thought we could we could try something slightly, slightly new um, and maybe start with um, like a bit of show and tell, you know, like uh, the kids do at school, um, and just find out how each other's fortnights have been. So, uh, Jenny, how have you been down there in, in Auckland? I mean, overall, the answer is fine and not just pandemic fine because we're actually fine. Um, things in New Zealand are great. Um, we ha- we did actually have some community cases of COVID, which prompted the government here to put Auckland in a lockdown. And I have to say that the announcement of a lockdown was very difficult for me. Um, I may or may not have used the words PTSD uh, and then was ridiculed for being melodramatic about that. But actually, um, it's very difficult as a working parent uh, losing childcare, losing school, Mm. um, which I think many of our listeners know all too well. Yeah. So it's a proper Um, lockdown with literally everything apart from essential stores closing, was it? So New Zealand has uh, graded their restrictions into four levels, with level four being full lockdown, really only essential workers being closed, most restaurants and other things being closed. But we were only in level three, which meant we could still get takeaways, still get coffees, go for a walk in our neighborhood. Um it was cruel because the first two days of the lockdown were the rainiest days we've had this season. So um, everyone, I think, was feeling a little cabin fever. But, um, you know, we're just really lucky. Um, the, the community cases prompted a huge rush of testing in the community. The um, public health workers and physicians just really responded um, amazingly, ramped up their testing, um, and we were able to come out of lockdown after just three days. So it was incredible Um, because, um, you know, obviously it was so short and we feel a lot of confidence and trust in the decision making. I think in no small part to the way that the current prime minister, Jacinda, has a real gift for communicating. Um, But I was saying to a neighbor, it felt a little bit like emotional whiplash in the sense that, you know, we're told how concerning the situation is and therefore these measures are justified. And then after just three days to be like, and it's all okay, go back to, you know, basically normal. Um, So Hmm. I think it took us a while to kind of... um, acclimate to lockdown and then re-acclimate mm. out um but it just made me feel really grateful to be here and hopeful for um vaccinations to hurry yeah 
I saw um, such an interesting clip of uh, Jacinda Ardern uh, doing, she did an Instagram live uh, taking questions about uh, vaccines. I didn't, you probably saw this, but she got a question about uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and whether someone asked <laughs> if I get the vaccine, will I um, blow up and explode like Violet Beauregard and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? And she answered it completely straight facing. You know, I've not seen any evidence about that. I don't think that's going to happen. She's just brilliant. She's um, really, uh, I don't know, she's as, as a leader, I think she's someone you can really, I don't know, connect with and feel very, um, I don't know, confident in. She's She's yeah, got a really good personal touch. Yeah. It, it definitely is, and um, she has a young child, um, as most people know, because she became the first kind of um, head of a country, head of a state, to actually have a child um, in office, and um, you know that that child goes to like a public kindy, and you know they they go around to coffee shops, and it's a very kind of quotidian existence like it's not uncommon to run into her in the community to run into their family in the supermarket it's a very um new zealand thing Mm -hmm. to just have that kind of um shared experience with with the pm well um boris johnson once went past me on his bicycle many years ago (laughs) so you know We've we've got that too. Basically, (laughs) (laughs) Um, now, Joy, how's how's your last couple of weeks been? Yeah, they've been fine. Um, I was just thinking uh, that I mean, we all work on the education section of uh, the BMJ, and I was just looking at some of the ones that we've published recently, and I was just this seems like such an obvious thing to say, but how quickly we've kind of absorbed. The, the changes that we've had as a result of the p- pandemic. So just looking at some of the articles we've published recently, like um, there was one that you edited, Tom, which is about written online consultations and how that's kind of gone really mainstream during this pandemic. And then um, another one on uh, sort of um, uh, blood tests for monitoring uh, DMARDs as well and how that's had to adapt during the pandemic. It's all these things that kind of... Um, we're just adapting and then this week with the news that um they will be doing sort of home testing for cervical cancer as well i mean there was a whole thing about that mm. those being described as smear tests but anyway put setting that aside but I, d- I don't know i just think um adapt like we've adapted in so many ways so quickly to this uh pandemic and i think i just um whenever i t- sort of take a step back and think about that and the sort of speed with which that's mm. happened i just feel so kind of like amazed really and uh yeah it just sort of blow, blows mm. me away yeah and i think we'll be um it, well interesting that today's uh interviews are about things which you know i guess this is said a lot isn't it but things that you, you would never have um expected us to be talking about uh and, and how like i was on call yesterday and you know didn't didn't have a single child with a fever or a person with a cough you know query chest infection it was all yeah. actually it was people asking um, about their vaccine like, risk group or uh, priority group and things like that. Yeah. Uh, very different. Uh, and for me, um, in the last couple of weeks, um, I'm still trying to sort of stay away from <laughs> mainstream media and uh, things like that as, as much <laughs> as I can, um, uh, but but have been using Twitter a little bit just to keep an eye on things. But, uh, you know, getting more into podcasts and uh, it's always that that fun thing finding a, a new podcast which which you like um so i thought i'd share one of them with you it's called tinkered thinking have you heard of this one no so it's like a, it's one of these daily podcasts which um give you like a sort of five minute blast of like um profound thoughts <laughs> i suppose uh so i thought I, so i got one called uh, implications of nuance was was one and it links quite nicely i think to to some oh. things we'll be discussing today should i try and read you some of the um the lines from the podcast yes please our tendency to categorize is as old as the bible where man's first task was simply to name everything until we've cleaved everything down to the tiniest part nuance inherently exists between categories nuance is where the seams and edges of life blur and categories become useless The great value of nuance is that it comprises the path towards deep understanding. And the great tragedy is that an over-dependence on categories eventually makes us blind to nuance. So I was listening to that on the way home last night, thinking, having spent a day 
mostly just thinking about categories and <laughs> which category people belong in uh, and, and thinking about today's episode, of course, and, and just thinking, yeah, we, we've really become a little bit um, obsessed with categories this year and um, perhaps a lot of the problems or kind of disagreements you're seeing is about people not being so interested or aware of the nuance in, in things. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very much so. Like, it's quite a blunt instrument, isn't it? So talking about categories and, and nuance, uh, last week an extra, one, I think it's 1.7 million people were sent letters and asked to shield uh, based on risk modelling, um, based on the, the QCOVID risk tool. Um, so, you know, this has had big implications for general practice as well, and, and mostly for our patients, of course. But um, as I say, we're getting a lot of people getting in touch saying, you know, I've got this letter, can you explain it or is it, is it correct? Uh, so we thought it'd be a really good idea to to talk to somebody about this and, and try and put some of these questions. Um, but it's a, it's an amazing thing, isn't it, that we've we, we, that this has happened. It just but it has just happened without t- too much, um, you know, it hasn't caused that much debate. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, in some oh oh okay sorry <laughs> uh, yeah I mean in some ways it's great to see that our pandemic response is kind of adapting to information as it's coming through I suppose it did just seem to come out of nowhere and I'm sure it didn't maybe I just didn't have my ear to the ground but I'm interested to know like how much warning did practices get that this was happening and and how were you able to prepare you know sort of a partner in a surgery did you see it coming uh we just saw it in the news no i think that we don't yeah but sent anything about it as far as i'm aware kind of amazing yeah it's it's really incredible but did people know it was coming i mean what about people who received one of these letters and the impact that it's had on them Mm. in terms of how they think about their risk you know we've talked a lot on this podcast about how we can do a better job of communicating risk to people and helping them make decisions around that. And and if you're suddenly being mm. categorized in a way that puts you at higher risk, I wonder yeah. how people are reacting to that. Yeah. Well, I, I spoke to someone yesterday uh, and he's, he's given his permission for me to, to, to talk about this uh, on the podcast. Um, who's a frontline healthcare worker. Uh, He has been so for the last year and a half. Uh, He got one of these letters saying that, um, you know, he's extremely vulnerable and he should be either working from home or if if he's not able to, you know, don't work at all. Um, And um, as far as he was concerned, he's a sort of healthy uh, individual without any major health problems. Uh, and and really couldn't couldn't really understand why. Um, so we we worked out his. We went to the Q COVID website and plugged in his data uh, and actually found that his his risk, although it's higher, you know, certainly that his relative risk was high. It wasn't so high. Somehow, I, I guess the um, the system, the algorithm, hadn't got it quite right. Mm. Um, and um, and I'm glad he checked because because uh, of course he was going to have to essentially stop work but then of mm. course he explains that you know he's had his first vaccine like two months ago he's had covid and, and covid antibodies i said to him yeah, it does feel like shutting the stable door after the horse has bolted doesn't it it's like what what, what was this mm. um, what was the purpose of this yeah um so shall we move on to to hear the interview then so i asked uh, kamla kunti some questions about uh, about the, the risk calculator and uh, here's what he says um, i'm kamish kunti i'm a professor of primary care diabetes and vascular medicine at the university of leicester I'm a general practitioner and member of uh, SAGE and Independent SAGE as well. Well, thank you so much for, for joining me today and, and for letting me sort of quiz you a bit about uh, QCOVID, which I know you were involved in as one of the, the co-authors. Um, I suppose I want to start with what a patient might say to me. is they say, I've got the shielding letter through the post, you know, a year late or whatever. Um, 
and I want to know what, why I've been asked or told I should be shielding. And, and, and I'm thinking, can you give us a quick explanation of QCOVID and how, how we've come to this point? Yeah, we, we, we know that there are a number of factors that puts people at higher risk of getting COVID and severe COVID. And that, by that, we mean hospitalization and dying from it. And these include AIDS, sex, um, deprivation, ethnicity, and chronic conditions, uh, as well as obesity as well. So what QCOVID does is puts all of these into a formula and gives uh, a population level risk for each person, depending on what risk factors that they have uh, and their postcode, what, which gives us their deprivation, as well as their age, uh, sex, and comorbidities as well. And this, this way we can rank people at the highest risk or the lowest risk. And what QCOVID uh, shielding list has done is looked at the top 2% of people in England who are at the highest risk. They're at the highest risk of having getting COVID and getting severe disease, um, so being hospitalized and dying from it. And, and the risk is calculated at about 0.5%. That's about five in a thousand people who would be at this highest risk. Okay, I understand that this is derived from primary care data sets, is that, is that right? Which is one of the, the strengths of the, the, the study? Well, we have the best data sets in the world. We're the envy of the world in terms of the data we have. We also have one person registered with one general practice, so we can track these people and we've got all their data, hospital data, what tests they've had done, what diagnosis they have, what mm -hmm. hospital admissions they've had. And because of that, we can use these data to manipulate this and develop this risk score. Okay. And I did just have one little question about that, because I'm thinking about, as a GP myself, you know, not all of my patients' notes are as accurate as they might be, and they, there might be data missing, or often it's um, whether somebody appears on my high-risk COVID sort of prompts depends on a, a code that was very out of date or inaccurate. It's, um, so I suppose there's two questions there. What well, One is that, is the QCOVID data so tidied up? Is it more reliable than, than, than some of our, our, our practices or patients? And um, well, let, let's start with that one first. Yeah, so it's a really good question. I'm a GP, I know how messy these data can be. Uh, and so the way it works is for most of the data, the data quality is good. And, and, and the reason is we have uh, the COF, uh, the quality and outcomes framework. And because of that, we have to code certain conditions uh, such as diabetes, asthma, uh, chronic uh, airways disease, uh, depression, etc. So these are all in there. As well as that, the age and sex is well-coded. Deprivation we can get from the postcode, that's well-coded. We also triangulate data with hospital data. So if there's any missing data, we can add that data to it. But despite that, as you say, there will be some missing data. And this is where they use... Um, again, uh, really good sophisticated statistics to model what that missing data could be and then add that data into the person's notes. Oh, wow. Um, so even if we've, we've got it wrong, then there's a, there's a, a way of predicting <laughs> what it might be. That's right. And, and we can check it. You see, we can, we can go yeah. and if the person thinks they're, they're not on the list. We can put the latest data and yeah. find out whether they are at high or low risk. Hmm. Uh, the next thing I want to, to ask about is, um, yeah, so I understand that this works well on a population level, um, but, but are there problems when trying to apply this to an individual? And because as GPs, we're, we're really dealing with individuals predominantly. Uh, and um, you know, are there data points that maybe don't, well, don't map out that well when, you, when you're looking at the individual? Well, the, the, the only way we can do it is by uh, at population level because it's, it's a population database. Um, so you get, get an average, this is the risk that this person has at population level. That's the only way we can work. And this is not new. We, you do this all the time. Um, so we use the QRIS score, as you all know. Um, this is where we identify people who are at the highest risk of getting a heart attack or a stroke or dying from it over 10 years. And this uses the same data points and we decide who's got the risk of 10% or above over the next 10 years to have one of these events. And then if you are, then we offer them uh, a statin. But we know that statin may not work for everyone uh, in, at individual level. But, you, mm. but this is the best way to work out a population. 
I'm wondering, um, so I looked at the, the Q, Q COVID obviously before talking to you. Uh, so if you're asking for postcode, um, but I suppose within a postcode area, there may be people with various degrees of, of deprivation. You, you might get your shielding letter, but think, um, you know, I, I, you know, I'm the, one, the person with the very expensive house with kids in private school in, in that postcode and, and this doesn't really apply to me. Uh, is that something we, we ought to be aware of or to be trying you're, to... You're right. It does look at the small, small area level. It's not that the individual uh, person level um, uh, in terms of the deprivation score. But again, you know, if you look at it, it's, that's just one of the risk scores. It, w- it wouldn't put you at mm. highest risk just having that one risk score. You've got to have a combination of a number of other risk factors that are in the QCOVID risk score yeah. that will give you a, a population level risk based on all of those risk factors rather than just one uh, risk factor. And also this uh, QCOVID risk score has been validated as well. So it was tested on the Q research database, but then uh, validated again using the Office of National Statistics database. And in terms of the accuracy, the way it worked, seem to be very, very similar. Okay. Uh, I want to ask you, because it, it takes into account ethnic group, which I think is very welcome, doesn't it? So is, do you see this as a way of helping to um, address some of these um, t- you know, terrible inequalities with, with some of the, the outcomes in the last year? As I mentioned before, you know, there are a number of factors puts people at risk, age, sex, mm. um, uh, ethnicity, uh, deprivation, and chronic diseases, as well as obesity. Um, and it's so good that at last we've got the ethnicity in a risk equation uh, because, as we know, they have been disproportionately affected. And a lot of people have been saying, why are the minorities not been prioritised for vaccination programmes? Well, the reason is ethnicity is one of the risk factors, as I mentioned. There are a number of other risk factors. We need to take all of them into consideration. And this now allows us to put all of those and take into consideration that person's risk based on all of these risk factors. Mm. And uh, do we know at the moment, um, when, we, when we're thinking of eth- ethnicity, um, some, you, you see a lot of discussion, there's a huge amount of discussion on, on this, r- rightly. Is there, um, it's an answer to this question or not at the moment, but uh, is this about the, the, number, the amount of exposure um, that because of people of some ethnic minority backgrounds may be having more exposures, or is there something intrinsic about the, the person's ethnicity? It's a really, really good question. This is something we're trying to figure out since the 1st of April. Uh, 1st of April is the first time I put a tweet out because I'd heard from friends who said, look, Kamala, you do research. And there's lots of people in uh, ICU who are young uh, ethnic minority populations. And then since then, the data have been coming out. We really still don't know what the key reasons are. Uh, there are a number of factors uh, at play. Uh, we know, first of all, that they live in more deprived populations. We know they have uh, certain chronic conditions such as uh, diabetes, uh, uh, cardiac disease, kidney disease, which are more uh, often prevalent in ethnic minority groups. We also know that they're in certain jobs that puts them at highest risk. As you say, it gives them a higher exposure. Uh, that may include um, either healthcare workers or people in other key worker roles such as transport, uh, uh, delivery, et cetera. But also, we know that housing density makes a big difference as well. So um, ethnic minorities live in more populated housing, a lot more people into small living together in small houses, and also multi-generational housing as well. So that really gets a big storm, because if you've got a healthcare worker or a key worker who lives in a multi-generational house with an elderly population, they may, may be bringing the the infection in, they may not have the symptoms or have mild symptoms, but passing on to the elderly uh, person in that household, putting them at much, much higher risk. Mm. Um, is that something that could one day, I don't think that does feature in, in the QCOVID scoring, is that something that would be be a useful thing to, to include? I'm just, just wondering if that's a big factor. So household size is something that we have looked at using the Q Research database, and we are considering um, putting that into the risk score, but there's a number of things we're learning. As you know, it's early days, only nine months, and we've learned so much from mm. about COVID and the uh, potential risk factors. So these are all new risk factors that we could put into the risk score.
Jenny, I'm really interested in, in, in your view on this as, as someone you know, in Auckland, uh, an outsider's view. What do, you, what do you make of it all? It's kind of what you were saying earlier about nuance, isn't it? Anytime you try to take something really complex and boil it down to a simple score, mm. you are bound to miss people. And I think the, you know, the frontline healthcare worker you were speaking to is a good example. Um, there's no way that, you know, an algorithm including age, sex, obesity, quote unquote, deprivation, ethnicity, and other conditions can accurately predict who is going to have serious disease and who is going to need mechanical ventilation and and any of these really important kind of patient-centered outcomes. Um, you know, attempts to measure deprivation and as you guys were discussing, even ethnicity insofar as it impacts on outcomes is also really challenging. Um, I've been thinking a lot recently about the importance of occupational exposure and probably something that we haven't really um, given enough weight when we talk about mm. public health responses. But, um, you know, for example, in some parts of the United States, particularly in really urban areas, they've seen a plummeting number of new infections. And I was speaking to one of my friends at Florida International University, and we just have to think that it's due to some combination of the people who were already people facing in their occupations or in their um, employment had already been exposed. People who were at risk because they were healthcare workers or um, older had already been vaccinated. And the people who were privileged enough to work from home or avoid exposures were still probably staying at home. And so in some ways, that small community of people who'd been vaccinated and people who'd already probably been infected had this level of herd immunity. And I know there's no clear explanation in every case of how we've seen um, in so many different communities plummeting um, case numbers. but. But again, um, I think that occupational exposure really matters and probably something we haven't given enough um, credit to. Yeah, it's um, very brave of you to say the words herd immunity, Jenny. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, well, but ag I, well, again, with the caveat that no one really yeah, knows yeah, no. what's going on to explain yeah. some of these numbers, but they're, it, they're you know, probably approaching some yeah. level in those very distinct groups of people yeah. where enough people have either been vaccinated or already infected. Yeah. I mean, in, in the area of London, again, where I work, you know, we had the the highest levels, you know, two months ago, and now some of the lowest levels in the, in England. And it doesn't really make sense. And there's parts of the you know, northern parts of the country where it's, it's never been that high, but also never been that low. It just, it's very... Very confusing, but um, it's coronavirus. It keeps giving us more more things to chew on. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> uh, Navjo, any, any thoughts on on the interview there? What Kamash was saying? Yeah, I mean it's so interesting, and I um, have like mixed feelings really about this calculation. I think on the or, on how you know on uh, in just your the point that you opened with about nuance and how this is so nuanced and. Um, getting something sensible out of the data that we have and applying that to uh, our patients you know I, I think in in some ways I'm it's great that there's an effort to do that and to kind of have this agility in in the response um, and also I think in terms of you know sort of an effort to maybe build trust or to um, you know that that's important perhaps perhaps you know trust is also about how it's kind of implemented as well and, and not being surprised by a letter and that sort of thing but I think overall I think that it there is um, something admirable about doing this but I also then think about you know what we talk about when we talk about all of these calculators like when we use QRISC and use that to um, discuss starting a statin for example I think with you know as 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 always, you know, individuals are so different in their kind of um, appetite for risk. And, and you know, we know that the 
the evidence is imprecise and so we just kind of have to try and make make the best of that and kind of try and help our patients kind of navigate through that and it's particularly hard in the sort of context of a pandemic when there's so much kind of anxiety about it all um one, one thought i have is that you know i'm really in, in favor of using these these tools but um i kind of feel that they can only work when there is someone there who has kind of permission i suppose to apply the nuance and to, to um yeah and i feel that that is kind of our well we can make that our role if we want to as gps and and it's actually very re- rewarding I, i've been finding to to do that um but um, I guess we need to sort of grasp that challenge and take it on. Um, and I'm not always sure that <clears throat> we always feel that confident too, or we, we place so much trust in, in the algorithm. We go, well, if you've got a shielding letter, it must be right. But actually, you know, I think we, 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 if yeah. we have enough training and understanding of, of it and can have that conversation with the patient to, to see actually, no, I don't think this does is right. Or, you know, the assumptions that are made in the calculator don't take into account you know x y and z you know but then it should be done in collaboration <laughs> with uh, general practice then as well i think i think yeah. you know involve gps from the outset and i think we can we can do this uh, certainly you know what because because gps are equipped to have that conversation i think mm. and can you know can do it whereas <laughs> you know you also hear about in you know these letters talk about people's um you know options about working not even options but you know recommendations mm. about working and so a lot of the time people are taking these letters and talking to their managers or you know employers about these things and i think that's quite that's quite challenging i think is to expect you know um employers to kind of make sense of this and determine what to do um, I've got another question for you. Um, do you do you worry about the sort of stigmatisation of of these groups of people? You know, when the dust has settled, we move on from this. Do you think there's going to be a residual problem or stigma um, to those people who have been told they are clinically extremely vulnerable, etc.? Um, I don't know. I suppose I would think of it more maybe a stigma towards themselves like that you know um maybe am i more vulnerable to um disease or to covid in particular but that i mean that uh, you know the worry is that comes with a certain mindset and you know might leave a sort of legacy of people feeling quite anxious about you know uh you know as we're talking about in the uk at least about a roadmap out of covid um feeling you know i i have not had a shielding letter but I I feel anxious about you know returning to some sort of normality so I just think that that might be quite challenging when you've been told you're vulnerable to and then to shift back I mean we had an episode about this last year um and we heard from a patient who said exactly that Mm. that you know as the restrictions were lifting it was really challenging so that that's where I would see maybe not stigma but just a kind of uh, complexity Mm. about a sort of return can I um Mm. I'd like to read you another passage with that. Could I have your permission? Yeah, I love hearing you reading it. So this is, um, yeah. I, I read last year, I, the Ivan Illich book, Medical Nemesis, which, you know, I don't, have you read it, Ivan? No, no. You, should, you, should, well, <laughs> you should and you shouldn't, because it, I, I was sort of very close to just quitting medicine altogether because Ivan Illich doesn't really like, <laughs> or doesn't give a very... Um, we, uh, we're just selling sickness. Sorry? Yeah. We're selling sickness. Exactly, yeah. So yeah. bearing that in mind, you know, what follows is is, is difficult to, to take on. But um, I think it's really useful to, to hear views like this. So shall I, uh, I'm going to go for it. And I may, I thought of this passage because when I was thinking about this episode and these patients, I was thinking like, am I, am I being a doctor here or am I some sort of actuary, you know, just somebody who, whose job mm. it is to assess risk. And this is mentioned in, in Medical Nemesis. So... In other instances, however, the physician acts primarily as an actuary and his diagnosis can defame the patient for life. By attaching irreversible degradation to a person's identity, it brands him forever with a permanent stigma. Professional suspicion alone is enough to legitimise the stigma, even if the suspected condition never existed. The medical label may protect the patient from punishment, only to submit him to interminable instruction, treatment and discrimination which are inflicted on him for his professionally presumed benefit. 
and this was written in the 70s <laughs> uh, and it just seems very kind of um you know if you if you choose to view modern day through this lens then um i think we we ought to sort of at least think about and, and talk about the, the risks of um you know this this jenny um, I was just going to say, I'm not familiar with this author, but I'm curious about how they came to this conclusion. I mean, I, I, I understand that perspective. And, yeah. and you know, I think we've all imagined um, ways in which diagnoses can result in stigmatization and discrimination. Um at the same time, I think a lot of patients really struggle when they feel their symptoms aren't being recognized or taken seriously and often find relief in a diagnosis, even if that doesn't necessarily mm. lead to treatment or amelioration of symptoms or cure, yeah. but just kind of knowing that they have a thing that's recognizable and that others might be experiencing a similar thing. Yeah, I think this passage, um, obviously, I'm leading us into a rabbit hole, which we need to get out of very <laughs> soon. But <laughs> this passage is talking about, um, well, there's another bit saying um, medicalised prevention is, a, is, a, is where the, the physician is a licensed magician whose uh, prophecies cripple even those <laughs> who are left unharmed magician. by his bruise. So it's it's talking about say, people with, without okay. symptoms. And my patient yesterday is somebody exactly that who has been sort of... Um, turned into a patient and uh, with, with 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 a lifelong risk and risk of mm. you know very high risk of death and isn't allowed to work or going to shops even without any um mm. you know even somebody who who doesn't want the 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 label of a patient or a, or a mm. sick person in in all of these conversations about overdiagnosis um and sort of labeling that that we have i mean the the sort of uh, corollary is always about recognising that there are groups of people who are underdiagnosed and overlooked. And I think in the context of COVID um, and, you know, the, the interviews that we, we have heard and will be hearing later, I mean, I think that is really important that, you mm. know, there are groups of people who, um, when the pandemic first started and, and it continues now, have different outcomes mm. from COVID. Mm. And I think this sense that we just don't do anything about that. I mean, that doesn't feel right either. Yeah. Okay. And we're going to move on to um, vaccination, aren't we? And, and just what you're starting to lead to or talking about there, um, joint is there are groups of, of people who, um, as well as having disproportionately died from, from COVID, um, are also less likely to have had a vaccine now, even though they may be um, eligible for one. So, um, yeah, what, what, do you want to lead us into this? Yeah, so uh, exactly what you just said, Tom. So um, we wanted to hear from someone who has been involved in studying some of these inequalities in outcome from COVID, particularly related to ethnicity. And then also more recently, we've been hearing about uh, sort of differential rates in uptakes of vaccine as well. Um, and so we thought, who better to talk to than Kevin Fenton, who is the uh, Public Health Regional Director for London, who also um, led two of the reports that Public Health England did into the inequalities related to um, COVID-19 that were published last year. And Kevin um, has been leading the vaccination effort in London. And he spoke to us uh, about how that's going. Great. Uh, well, that's going to come up in a moment after this from our sponsor. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you with expert medico-legal advice, including 24-7 in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations, and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks, and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, 
we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. And now back to Navjoit's interview with Kevin Fenton. So, yeah, this is an amazing and really important time for us in the response to this pandemic. After a year of uh, implementing such a variety of control measures, we are now poised to effectively have one of the most effective tools uh, for tackling the pandemic. And we are rolling this out to millions of people across the country. And London is no exception. Uh, today, more than 1.8 million Londoners have received their first dose of the vaccine. And we know that this uptake is seen across most of our boroughs, although we're beginning to see different patterns of uptake emerging. And that's a cause for concern. But we also recognize that this is a new technology. Uh, there are many questions that communities have and that communities often need the time and the space to converse with their healthcare provider, with authorities, those who are providing the program to build that confidence. So in order to uh, do that, We've been working really closely and really across the city with our partners to have really honest and authentic community conversations about the vaccine, about the effectiveness of the vaccine, to address the concerns that we hear from communities and to really work with them to overcome some of those uh, concerns. And what do you think is behind some of those kind of differences in uptake by community? So the data in London are really now beginning to show very interesting patterns, both in terms of variation across the city in vaccine hesitancy and how that variation in hesitancy has a material impact on the uptake. So for example, when we look at the hesitancy data in uh, population polls and surveys, we see that communities such as those living in more deprived parts of the city, communities which are black, Asian and minority ethnic, we see differences between men and women. Um, there are a number of areas where we see differences in hesitancy and that plays out into the uptake of the vaccine. Now at the moment, we've been focusing quite a bit on some of the variations by, uh, er especially in areas uh, which are more deprived in the city where we know we have lower uptake. And then within that, we're also looking at differences across racial and ethnic groups and the intersection in many of our communities with faith as well. So again, for example, for Black African communities, which currently have some of the lowest uptake uh, in communities across the city, we know that Black African communities in the city report high levels of hesitancy. And we also know that Black Pentecostal uh, faith members also have higher levels of hesitancy as well. So as we think about the data and we think about the response, it's about looking at the inequalities in the round looking at the intersections between these inequalities. So how does gender and faith and ethnicity all intersect to result in uh, hesitancy, uh, lack of trust, poor uptake or poor access? And then how do you, do you develop more comprehensive approaches to addressing that? And that's exactly what we're doing in the city. Mm. Yeah, could you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, how do you respond at kind of a public health level? So it's really important that we don't situate vaccine hesitancy and low uptake of the vaccine as a problem of particular individuals or communities. But we have to take what we refer to in London as the public health approach, which really looks at the factors that both motivate people uh, to take up the vaccine, the factors that build trust and engagement of communities with the healthcare sector, we have to look at the institutional factors that can in themselves be barriers to communities actually getting access, taking up the vaccine, getting culturally competent information in ways that are meaningful to those communities. And then finally, are communities able to access vaccination sites? Are they open at a particular time? Are they relevant to community? Are they accessible? Um, and all of those factors need to be taken into consideration. So when we have that pathway approach to understanding hesitancy and uptake, it allows us to intervene in multiple levels with different communities. 
For some, it may be through conversations with them, providing materials in their own language, using images which are relevant to those communities. For others, it is about situating vaccination sites within localities so that it's much easier for people to access them, especially if they're in jobs or in social conditions or circumstances that prevent them from leaving the home or venturing far from their homes. For others, other, other communities, it is about sitting down and engaging and listening to the historic concerns, injustices, exclusion that communities feel and allowing that space for that to be vented and to co-create a better way of engaging, recognizing that the hesitancy that people are expressing for the vaccines really may well affect other aspects of the response to COVID, whether it's getting tested for COVID or participating in contact tracing. So building that trust, listening to communities' concerns may be exactly what's required to help to get communities uh, across the line. But for all of the methods, it begins with active listening. It begins with us saying, actually, we know we don't have all the answers and we need to work with you as a community to help us to find those answers that work best for you. And I guess this is something that, um, you know, this is all happening in the context of um, COVID vaccination, but I guess this process could be so useful to, you know, so many other health interventions. Can you see that this this might be a kind of springboard for um, more engagement going forward? Well, I'm so glad you said that because this is exactly the, the infrastructure now that we're building through this pandemic is one that really shifts and changes the way we've engaged with communities in the past, really recognises the importance of these wider determinants of health, the importance of addressing them as being key to being successful with the COVID pandemic. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been made so stark, hasn't it, by the pandemic, these inequalities, and I think it's hopefully on um, so many more people's uh, radar now. And I mean, how do GPs fit into all of this? So GPs are, again, such an incredibly important part of the strategy. You know, when we look at how people are engaging and where communities engage and who are the trusted sort of people within communities, people will reflect on their pharmacist, their GP, their local faith leader, local community leaders. So at the end of the day, place is important and people's connection and connectivity to that place is critical. So as we're developing and delivering the program, we need to ensure that general practitioners, the GPs and primary care, the primary care family is far more engaged in this phase of the response Mm -hmm. than they have ever been. And I know that throughout the course of the year with the pandemic, there have been different times when I know primary care practitioners says, listen, you haven't engaged us, you haven't used us as much as you could have in, you know, wave one and wave two of the pandemic. Now is the time, I think, for us to really embrace the primary care family, GPs, pharmacists, to begin thinking about uh, access and uptake and supporting uh, community members, especially the most vulnerable in getting access to, to this technology. And, and, you know, we're learning as we're doing. Mm. And so, you know, it's hard to believe that we've only had the vaccine now for just over two and a half months from December. Um, but it feels as if it's been with us for a while and it feels as if this is something that we've been doing. Uh, for forever, but it isn't. It's a new program. We're learning and we're working out some of the difficulties as we're doing the implementation. And we have to be agile and we have to welcome all partners to this table. Yeah, and I think a lot of GPs, um, you know, there was that sense when the rollout started of GPs saying, you know, exactly what you're saying, you know, we could be part of this. This is what we do. This is kind of, you know, we do the flu vaccines every year. This is kind of our core um, work. Uh, and so what what would you say to, you know, if GPs listening to this and they're aware that perhaps in the community where they work, that they see, you know, um, people expressing kind of concerns about the vaccine or, you know, they have data that might show a, a difference in uptake um, in certain communities. What can a GP do at a kind of individual level, do you think? Mm. I think there are three key things that I think every GP you know, I, I saw my GP yesterday because I had my uh, vaccine yesterday. Oh, um, and it was so wonderful just going into the practice, into a welcoming, supportive environment where everybody was just in a good mood talking about the vaccine. I was happy to get the vaccine and I felt welcome. I felt engaged. 
And it was a really good chance to say thanks to the practice for everything they're doing. So there are three things I think that, you know, in an ideal world, all, we should all be thinking of in terms of the GP's role. The first is ensuring that they play an active role in, in uh, understanding their lists, understanding and engaging uh, 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 members of their practice to get the vaccine when it's their time. And again, looking at the data, interrogating the data on where are the gaps, what more outreach can be done, and how can they work with community partners to address some of those. The second thing I think which is really important is making every contact count for the COVID vaccine. GPs will continue to have so many interactions with patients not related to COVID. And even for a minute, just to ask those simple questions, how are you coping with the, the pandemic? Have you had your vaccine yet? Do you have any questions? Mm. Do, do you take it up? Using every moment to just reflect on and to encourage around the vaccine uptake would be incredibly helpful. The power of the GP or the nurse practitioner or the, the receptionist just raising that issue is, is so great that we shouldn't lose that. And then the third ask of GPs is really to be part of the leadership within communities to ensure that you're speaking to the local paper, you're telling the good news stories of how the vaccines are working. That visibility as part of local leadership is priceless. And this is exactly what we need now. Diverse voices from the health and social care family talking about the vaccine and being seen to talk about the vaccine and engaging their local communities. I think we've been that third ask. Uh, thanks, Afjay. That was really useful. Um, got me thinking about um, those interactions where you're not actually there to talk about the, the vaccine, uh, but you see that they haven't had it or they've refused so far. Um, there's still that, that little bit in your mind going, do I have time? Am I going to talk about this? Um, <laughs> but, um, well, I won't confess to, to, to not, not doing that. I always ask, of course. Of course, of course. Um, one thing I want to ask you about, you know, this term vaccine hesitancy, I, I, I think I've got a problem with it. I, I, I think it is, again, a bit of a stigmatising term, isn't it? That, you know, why don't you just want the vaccine? What's wrong with you? Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think Kevin was very careful to kind of say that we can't... Um, I think the word he used is situate that as a problem for, for those individuals. It's actually a, a task of... Um, public health in in his case or you know the medical community or whoever to do that engagement work to communicate and uh to make sure that people have the you know the correct information they need to make those choices so i i would agree with you mm-hmm. yeah um like you know if if you're in a society that constantly lets you down and where those in authority seem to be working against you then um and then you're offered by those same people or told you must have this vaccine. I, I, yeah. like, why would you not be hesitant? Jenny? This reminds me so much of the episode we did when we talked about the flu vaccine. Um, oh, when yeah. we focused so much on how, you know, we're really oriented towards uptake. And I think it's really easy to consider our role to be closer to persuasion or convincing as opposed to explaining the risks and the benefits. Um, and so that for me really came through from your conversation, you know, like so much about community engagement and building communities trust is not about convincing them to do something, but about really trying to understand where they are, what their needs are, what their questions are, um, and to kind of explore their individual understanding of risk and benefit. Um, I also wanted to say that one thing, um, Dr. Fenton mentioned, which I really, really agreed with, was this idea of relocating spatially and mentally services so that we're doing a better job of meeting people where they are. Um, And he mentioned specifically like putting vaccine sites or putting, you know, places where you can get a vaccine in the communities um, themselves. And it reminded me of... um, the 2020 election in the US where some Texas polls stayed open overnight and got 
more than 100,000 new voters to come who'd never been able to vote before because they, because of their working hours or for whatever other reason, childcare, transportation, you can name it. Um, but when you actually want someone to access a service, it goes a really long way just to spatially and temporally kind of meet them there. Um, so that that um, really spoke to me. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I've, I've seen that since very anecdotal this but seems to play out in 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 our area i've seen people on online on my little forays into twitter sort of speculate about this that the, the more local the services the better the uptake yeah there was a lot of pushback when those kind of mega centers opened wasn't there about um you know particularly that was a time when i think the over 80s were the priority group and just you know the sort of logistics of people being able to travel there and then also you know there is something about that familiarity of your community in your local area that i think makes the whole process a bit um, easier and a bit happier yeah so one question then jenny going to your previous point uh what would you prefer that somebody had had a sort of detailed conversation where they'd weighed up those things with with a doctor or nurse or whoever and decided not to have the vaccine or or somebody who didn't have that explained but was sort of more coerced or just kind of pressured into it but did actually take it because they gave up and relented i mean that is such a hard you question have to choose one. <laughs> that's a mean question that's a mean question <laughs> me but, and well, Jamie okay, well, but it, pick one it feels, well, okay, so, so I, I'm not going to pick but what I will say <laughs> is that and we've we've you know again talked about this before about one thing about you know COVID and the vaccines which I suppose is true to some extent for every vaccine is the communal good right it's not just that you're protecting yourself no. but you're also protecting yeah. your family you're also protecting people in the community and I think um, that for me would be a reason why I would prefer greater uptake. Coercion for the greater good. No, uh, no, no uh, that's but, not um, what I said. <laughs> but it's true. But but that's the only thing being counted, isn't it? Number of people having the vaccine. We're not we're not counting, you know, anything about the quality of the um, decisions being made. Hmm. Yeah, you're right. And and again, we talked about this in our flu vaccine episode, that actually would that be a kind of better measure and kind of encourage yeah. that higher quality conversation? Yeah. Far too hard to measure, though. So let's not bother. Let's just let's just stick to counting. Yeah. And um, it is feel good when you see, you know, 80 million people have had their vaccine. Um, but yeah. but at the same time, it's, you know, like. How I suppose when we know that so much of kind of um, routine life and quote unquote normal life, when we know that so many elements of that can return mm-hmm. when we can gather and be in public and that no longer poses such a threat, it's, it, I mean, yeah. either, I, we, I, I, either we significantly restructure the way that we live we continue wearing masks all the time and or we achieve high levels of vaccination. Yeah. And I, I don't understand why that's not been bigger, a bigger part of the public health messaging is, you know, it's all about doing it for yourself, isn't it? Or your family. But, but actually I think the people doing vaccinations, a lot of people saying this to me that they are really doing it for the greater good so that we can all move, move on together. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it's not like the war, is it? You know, your country needs you. It's this is very much of individualistic um, reasons for for taking it or not. Maybe that's just the world we live in. So, <laughs> um, one of my one of my friends in New York sent me a clip from um, the Atlantic's newsletter, um, and it was talking about vaccination and you know. Ha- kind of went even when you're vaccinated what does that mean for your risk and and what do you do and what's acceptable or not um and they write there's another reason to keep wearing masks in public at least for now the strangers around you in a grocery store have no way of knowing whether you're vaccinated 
Wearing a mask is also a signal, at least in the U.S., that you take the virus seriously and believe that we're all in this together, because we are. We can all get back to our normal lives when enough people have been vaccinated that the coronavirus no longer poses so much of a threat in schools and workplaces. Um, And I think that's that for me is just really compelling. Mm. Yeah. And um, and all the better if you wear two masks and have your hand sanitizer. <laughs> nicely done. Very nice. I think that and yeah. <laughs> Which I think probably brings us to the end of the episode full circle. You brought it full circle. Well done. Thank you. With all uh, the nuance there. So, uh, well, thank you. To, thank you, uh, Jenny and Nafcho. It's been, been fun um, talking this through with you. Um, see you next time. Thanks, Tom. See you next time. Thank you. Uh, and thank you to uh, Kamlish and Kevin for, for talking to us. Uh, you can help increase the uptake of, of the podcast uh, by telling your friends, oh, wow. mentioning it in your meetings, on Twitter, <laughs> uh, and um, or pick up the phone and, and just talk to someone about the pros and cons of... Of, of having deep breath in in your life <laughs> uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with our next episode bye for now <laughs>